All right. Well, happy Father's Day and good morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy again as we power through it. Um, if you don't have the study guide, it is available in the back as the other ones are. Might be a couple in the front. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the last part of chapter 4, so that's where we'll be. And you can turn there. If you don't bring your sword to church and you rely on the screen, shame on you. You should have your Bible. I love to hear the pages turn, but also you need to be reading what is in the before and after what I read to you to make sure we're not freaky. Okay, It's responsibility on you to test what we're teaching. And so just because I throw a verse down doesn't mean it's not taken out of context. So my hope is that you'll become a wielder of the sword in, uh, in that way. Um, we've been studying for the last eight weeks now uh, really what I think amounts to a letter from a father uh, to a son, and uh, we don't have like special Father's Day sermons or Mother's Day sermons, but I think God has, has providentially ordained for us to be in this place, in this part of Scripture, and it kind of helps us to see maybe this letter uh, more so as a letter uh, from a father to a son. Uh, up until now, uh, Daddy Paul, if you will, has spent time giving wise instruction, good, solid instruction about how to uh, work and to fight to restore the health of this Ephesian church that is really in crisis. It's broken, it's unhealthy, it's under attack, um, and it's under attack from within. And the destruction, I'm convinced, mainly by Scripture, uh, but also in practical experience, that the destruction or death or really just, I guess, lack of health in any church always starts from within. We always see churches so worried about what's coming from outside in, but I think perhaps it should be more concerned with what's inside, uh, because that is where Paul had warned the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20. Before he left them, he called them together and he said, Fierce wolves, leaders from inside the church, and they're probably elders, liars, he calls them, who devote themselves, and last week he said, to demon-inspired doctrines are going to come and lead the sheep astray and kill some. And so pastors and members, as we saw last week, who once called themselves Christians in this church, and quite frankly in where we live, in Marysville, Snohomish County, are abandoning the church and abandoning faith because I believe, first and foremost, its leaders have abandoned Gospel truth, sound doctrine that accords with the gospel. That is what happens when you begin to see churches fall apart. And so, Timothy, by God's grace, is the chosen instrument to, to lead this charge back to health. And Paul directs this young man who is probably 30, 30-ish, but probably right about 30, to restore the purity of the doctrine that's being taught, the purity of the worship and the gathering of the service, the purity of the roles of men and women and how those have been perverted, and the purity of leadership in what is one of the biggest churches, probably in one of the biggest cities in Roman times, or at this time. And the task is incredibly daunting for this young guy. Very very difficult task, and the letters, if you read First and Second Timothy, reveal Timothy is he's not this, this charismatic kind of 
you know, incredibly strong, polished type of leader. He's revealed as a guy who's kind of shy, uh, immature, at least in age for sure, and definitely inexperienced. And so he gets the task of, of doing this really difficult thing that is, would be hard for anybody, but he is not qualified really in the eyes of whoever would uh, assess him to do that. And so to make matters worse, in today's passage, it appears that the, the people in the church, as he's come in, the older people in particular, and I'll let you define what older is, okay? People older than Timothy, so that's 30, probably wonder how old are you, born in 1974, do the math, so not much older than Timothy. The older people in the church are not respecting Timothy, and they're not following his instruction, and most likely his age in particular, but his singleness, he's not married, and his relative inexperience has made it very difficult for, for him to assert, assert authority and to speak authoritatively and has probably made him a pretty easy target for critics, where he's easy to pick on. And so, if it wasn't hard already, this makes his mission even that much harder and explains why Paul in the first chapter is urging him to stay. Because he probably wants to get out of there. This is hard. No one likes me. So Paul had initially installed elders at this church when he planted it. And he is the, for you know, most purposes, the relational, the spiritual, every kind of authority you can think of for this particular church. They listen to him. And he sent Timothy, this guy who was there when he planted the church, and has been traveling with him, but has just been his assistant, to lead as his representative. And Timothy shows up, and he doesn't really have a leading relationship with his church. This church has never seen Timmy, Timothy lead. They've seen him, but he's always been, you know, Timmy, sidekick Timmy. And he shows up, and you can imagine, like, oh, come on. You? Seriously? Tim? I mean, where's Paul? Well, Paul's coming. I know, but where is he now? Well, he's coming, and I'm, well, what, you have, like, authority? I mean, you can imagine this kind of mentality, because they know his past. They know where he's been. They've seen him before, and he never really spoke up. He was the guy that was fairly quiet, assisting. And so, I think in today's passage, you see a shift in the letter, where Paul starts to address Timothy's probably genuine feelings of inadequacy, which, quite frankly, every man in particular has that fear that I'm going to be found out, that I don't really know what the snarf I'm doing, everyone's going to know, and flee. Okay? Including my wife, my kids, the church, whatever. So he's trying to address that, giving him really less instruction about how to shepherd other people and starting to shepherd Timothy's heart himself, which I really appreciate. And my prayer is that you won't distance yourself from this letter going, well, I'm not a pastor, so let's hear how Sam's been being beaten up. Okay? but that you will listen to this letter and allow maybe for a second Paul to to father you a little bit, to pastor you a little bit as he instructs this other pastor, especially those people who have been called into really difficult situations that you really don't think you're supposed to be in, you don't like, you feel ill-equipped to do, to accomplish, or you just flat out are not enjoying it, but it's clear if you were to step back from all that emotion that you're called to be there. Those people, which I'm sure there are none here in that situation. So we'll read 1 Timothy chapter 4 and hope it applies to somebody. Okay, Verse 10, 
is where we uh, will begin, and we'll read the rest of the, the chapter here. Paul, Daddy Paul, writing to his son, Timothy. He says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we know, I'm sorry, we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things, that no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. And keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I will also say that this, this verse was like the verse that every youth group would use in verse 12, right? Every college dorm would have like, don't let anyone look down to youthfulness. And I think it's good to do that, especially for you youngsters. Right now, I'm a youngster. You can be a youngster if you want, okay? Anyone who is younger than me or older than me, I think this applies to you. But particularly, I'm thinking of my own son who's nine years old and who doesn't feel like he is leading anything or can lead or what it means to be a leader. And there's something, I think, here for him and those kids as well. First things first, though. Verse 10. Leading a church. Leading a family. Leading a bride, if you are married. Leading anyone, anywhere, is a difficult task. It's hard. And if you're in it, you know it. If you don't know it yet, you will. It's difficult. And I like that Paul here uses this English word. Well, the word for agony, our English word for agony, comes from the Greek word he uses here for striving, which is an athletic term for training. And he says that we toil and we strive, and quite frankly, it's agonizing at times. It's painful. And I like that Paul doesn't try to minimize the difficulty of the task here and just say, hey, Tim, stop being a pansy, man up, buck up, and lead. It is hard. He doesn't try to to dismiss that. But instead, I think he goes to the heart, which is where we should all go, to say, this is the motivation that you should be leading it all, regardless of the results. Okay? This is why you should be leading. And I believe that bad Dads, bad husbands, bad men, bad pastors, bad elders, bad or, or, or weak leaders ultimately are motivated by, I think, the empty praises of men. And that comes, it's not just men, it's women. Oftentimes men are leading in their marriages and they're motivated by just making their wives happy or vice versa, which is not a good motivation. Because my wife's happiness, or what she wants so desperately, might be the very opposite of what Jesus wants for her. And it's my responsibility to shepherd her, as it is for me, or for her to shepherd me at some level as well. But I do believe that we can get poorly motivated, and I do believe good husbands, good dads, good men, also includes wives, but since it's Father's Day, you guys are getting beat up today. Good pastors, good elders, solid Teachers are motivated by what Paul says here, not empty words of praise, but the empty tomb. Now, it sounds like a clever little statement, but there's so much truth in it. And what I mean by that is that our hope 
for anything should not flow from the changing tides of men's opinions and men's appetites because they're never satisfied. If you begin by making decisions based off what's going to make people happy, you're done. And you'll be frustrated and probably angry, if not just completely exasperated. Our hope is supposed to be set on proclaiming Jesus more in all that we do, regardless of the result. That's our goal. A gospel-centered life. Truly gospel-centered life. And that gospel-centered term is used a lot for a lot of things. And I understand that. I think it's a good term to use. But a gospel-centered life is one where you are convinced. You are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond what the emotions in the moment might say to you. You are convinced that all possibility for success or happiness in whatever situation you find yourself in, all possibility for success or happiness is predicated on you knowing and savoring and proclaiming Jesus more. That's it. That's a gospel-centered life. And with that pursuit, your life will change. Your attitude will change. How you live in your marriage will change. Your job will change. That pursuit, that discipline of a gospel-centered life will impact the decisions you make because you may make decisions that are more glorifying to Jesus and way less glorifying to you that are actually uncomfortable and inconvenient for you because they make much of Jesus regardless of how it impacts yourself. That's a different kind of life. And he tells Timothy, that's what you're motivated by, making much of Jesus. I don't care about the criticism. I don't care how you've been looked down upon. You do what is right, and what is right is what is most glorifying to Jesus. Now, he immediately goes into verse 11, which I like, because he gives this is the motivation, this is the basic truth, and then he goes, now lead. Knowing that, lead. And he doesn't take even a moment to empathize really with his fears, with a lot of doubts he has, or even his resistances to talk about, well, these are why they're resisting you, because you're just not talking very nice to them, whatever. He just says, look, you are to command and to teach. Strong words. Command these things. Command has this, this connotation of, if you don't do these, you are sinning. You are disobeying. And I think Paul is at some level affirming the spiritual authority that Timothy has and really all elders possess, which I recognize if I say makes some of you just go, oh, yucky, yucky. Why? Because it's been abused. I've been abused by XYZ. I've seen these elders do this. I understand that. And I admit that. That's happened in churches all over. It has happened in the history of the church. But it doesn't take away from what the Bible says there is an authority. And I know even the idea of authority in our culture makes people recoil. You can't tell me what to do. You shouldn't tell me what to do. And as it's just this angry or, or, or yucky feel to it, but the truth is, he is telling Timothy that elders, the pastors, have responsibility not to control people, but to teach sound doctrine and people are expected to obey it, if it's sound. That's important. That's why I say bring your Bibles, because whatever we teach should line up with Scripture. If we command you to do something that's not scriptural, run! I always say, rebuke. Then run! Okay? 
Because it, if it is aligned with Scripture, and as Paul is telling him, command these guys. 30-year-old pastor. You lay it down. Now, pastors, and I will add a couple to that. Because it's Father's Day. Dads, husbands, men. You are not to be doctrinal mercenaries or doctrinal assassins where you are polished theologians. You can just, you know, book, chapter, verse, tell someone why they're wrong, attack people. That's not what your call is. But your other, the opposite extreme is to be a doctrinal pansy. And you're not called to be that either. You can't be either one. You are to know sound doctrine. There are some things in the church as Christians that are not negotiable. They're not. There are some things that when you stop doing them, you are no longer believing Christianity. You are no longer following Jesus. And the things that he talks about, at least in the context of the church here, is at least the last three and a half chapters that we've read. Where he speaks to a lot of things. The purity of doctrine. There is sound doctrine. The purity of the gospel. The purity of corporate worship. The purity of roles in men and women. The purity of leadership. We constantly must measure ourselves according to Scripture, and especially according to these pastoral letters in particular. And I think it's worth saying that there's a lot of stuff in those three and a half chapters that's not there. That, quite frankly, I grew up in the church, maybe some of you grew up in the church, that have been idolized as essentials to the church when they aren't necessarily essentials. There is no scripture in here that says that we have to have a kids' ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, outdoor ministry. Doesn't isn't there. I think those things are great. Fantastic. As long as they are gospel center, they glorify God, wonderful. But they're not required. There are certain things that are commanded to have, and if you don't have, you're no longer a church. That's why we preach the whole sacred assembly series was to make sure that. You knew what are essentials to as a church and teach, not just command, why we believe that. You've got to know those things. And I take this a step further and say, there's a certain place where you can call yourself a husband just as you can a Christian, where you're no longer acting like a husband according to Scripture. Or a father. Well, I'm a husband. Well, you're not doing these things, providing for your family, emotionally, spiritually, all these things. You're no longer a husband now. Or your husband in sin. There is a line that gets crossed. And we're so slow to say that. Well, you can, you can believe and do that. No, at some point, as a dad, you are failing. And you should be told that out of love. Otherwise, you just continue on believing you're being a good dad. And you're not. Paul has told Timothy, this pastor, to command and teach things. Not just say, be a good dad. Be a good dad. Here is how and here is why. And you point it all back to Jesus. Because if Jesus is the husband, the, the standard, for example, that all husbands are measured, at some point, if you declare yourself a husband, you are either preaching truth or falsehood about what a husband is. You are preaching truth or falsehood about who Jesus is in particular. And I don't think it wise to be preaching falsehood about Jesus. Call me crazy. That seems like kind of a bad thing. So... Verse 12, though. So he says, command and teach these things. And you can imagine after, he, you know, Timothy's reading this letter. Okay. Yeah, okay, that's my motivation, Paul. The empty tomb. I do want to declare Jesus all right. Command and teach these things. Oh, come on. 
Do you know how hard it is? You don't get it, Paul. Right? And he, verse 12. Here's what he says. Let no one despise you for your youth. And set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Because he knows what Timothy's going, oh, come on, Paul. Easy for you to say, command and teach. You're a 50-ish old pastor, former Pharisee. You know your Bible like no one else. Right? You've got all kinds of battle scars. You got stoned and came back to life. I mean, come on. And you're going to come in and tell me, 30-year-old Timothy, never had a pebble thrown at me. Everyone loves me. Now everyone hates me. I'm supposed to teach like you did. And Paul already knows where he's going. He's like, ah. And my guess is he knows because Timothy said it. They, don't, they won't listen. Can you bring me home now? They won't listen. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one. And it's likely that, practically speaking, everyone in leadership in the church is young, uh, older than him. So he goes in, everyone's older, and certainly everyone's been in Ephesus longer than he has. You ever been in those situations, which I have, you walk into a, a group, a situation, a job, where they're like, you know, why don't you sit, be quiet, learn the ropes, don't say anything, because you don't get it yet. You don't know. Now, I know how difficult it is. Everyone knows how difficult it is for anyone who is older to listen to someone who's younger. Especially commanding and teaching things. To listen to that young buck, right? And I know this, is ha- I know this happens in our church. i got a beard. It makes me look older, right? I, I do that intentionally. So I'm like, what? 36. Really? It's all you- 36. Okay? So right now... And in the past, what happens is a 36-year-old pastor, 30, I mean, Timothy's 30, gets up, first thoughts for the old, I'm sure this has never happened to you. Thoughts are like, oh, what have you experienced? Can possibly, you, you don't know what I know. You don't have wisdom. Why do you keep referencing the 1980s? Okay? Like that's some, you know what I was doing in the 80s? And you go, 36, you were born in 1974. I was in junior high in 1974. And you were just like newborn. I was hating Richard Nixon, and you were, you know, just crying about whatever. Happens. We don't want to listen to the younger generation, whoever's younger than us, right? It's very difficult. I understand that, and I do believe that age and inexperience, as we define it, is often used two ways. One. Like Timothy, it's often used as an excuse and a refusal to lead when you're supposed to. I'm too young. I, shouldn't, I don't know this. I'm not experienced here. I shouldn't say anything. We use it, although we might be right on. We know the truth. We know the falsehood. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm new here. We use it as an excuse not to lead. And it's not. It's not allowed as an excuse. Fear, doubt, inexperience criticism, whatever it is, is not an excuse for you not to lead. It's not. might make it hard, but it's not an excuse. And the truth is, it's difficult for us to lead, but there's also those who say, you know what, I'm going to refuse to follow that person, not because what they're saying is wrong, but because they're young and experienced or whatever. History is full of great young leaders who lived beyond their years. Just a couple. You may have heard of them. Martin Luther. He was about 30 when he nailed his 95 
feces on the door on that famous castle. John Calvin was 26, I believe, when he wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion. 26. If you've never read that, it's kind of the definitive statement on this is what Christianity is. Been around for many years. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, led a big church. Wonderful pastor and preacher. 19 when he took over his pastorate. 19. And I think I was trying to think, why is there such a, a, a rebellion sometimes against the youth and young pastors and young leaders? And I think part of it is, at least from the older generation, is that we have this thing, and I've been just reading different articles about it. It's become a term now. That it's this idea of extended adolescence, where they're like, well, adolescence isn't really to 17. It's kind of up to like 35. Seriously. They're starting to look at this and go, well, why aren't people doing anything? And in my, you know, honestly, my job, I, I, I engage with a lot of husbands and a lot of fathers, and I'm meeting more 30 and 40 year old men who are more juvenile than the 17 year old kids I used to teach. They're juveniles. I'll even use those terms. You're a juvenile. Not in age, but how. Your behavior is, in your pursuits, in your hopes, in your dreams, in your goals. They're juvenile. You're juvenile in your thinking. Right now, they did some surveys. 20 to 35-year-old people are taking longer to finish their educations, longer to establish themselves in careers, longer to marry, longer to have children, longer to become financially independent, longer to give up fun, as they define it. And so I can understand why you would mistrust youth because they're out there doing nothing at the same time demanding all kinds of respect. Everyone knows that culture of entitlement, right? Well, you, you need to respect me because I'm a person. You haven't done anything. I'll respect you as a person, but that's all you got. And there's been no sense of urgency about doing anything. And from all signs, emotionally, physically, sexually, spiritually, children. Children in every sense of the word. And think about sexual children, right? Sexually immature children. What do they do? They sleep around. That's what they do. And you begin to go, do you understand this? Emotionally juvenile children. What do they do? They have wives who go and find emotional support somewhere else. It's just broken. And so, Paul basically tells Timothy here, and it's not the same necessarily in this culture, but I think without question it applies to us. He says, look, if you don't want to be despised for being young, don't do anything despicable. I mean, I said, don't do anything that's juvenile. It's, it's funny because... The easiest thing for me to do when someone challenges me or disrespects me, like, you disrespect me, right? When someone disrespects me, it's like, what? Bring it. You want to disrespect? I'll throw down with you right now, old man, right? <laughs> he doesn't tell Timothy to do that. He doesn't say, like, you put those old fogies in the place, you command and teach them, and you pull it out and go, Pastor! And if you don't listen, you're cursed. You know, whatever. He doesn't tell him to do that. Although, in some sense, 
he might be able to. He doesn't say, pull out the card. And I'm always blown away by husbands and wives, marriages sit down, and the, the guys you're doing premarital counseling, let's, let's talk about headship, right? Let's talk about submission, right? She's supposed to, I'm the head, isn't that the right, you know? Isn't, that, isn't there a verse on that? I'm like, dude, first of all, you're going to have a lot of trouble. That's the first thing you're bringing up. Secondly, headship card? You know how many times I've pulled that baby out of my wife in the last 15 years? Maybe like half a time. Like you start to show it? No. You pull down headship all the time? Oh, good luck. Right? Now there is a time, and I have done that as a pastor. I've sat down with people and I've said, look, I'm your friend, but not here. I'm your family, but not here. I'm your pastor. This is how this conversation is going to go. There are times and places for that. But not all the time. And Paul basically tells him, don't demand respect. I'm the pastor. And that's why I always tell you, I hate being called pastor. Okay? I understand it's it's honorable. But don't demand respect because there's a title there in anything. Your job, I'm the boss, I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm your dad. I mean, come on, dads, how many times? Why should I listen to you? I'm your dad. It's true. It's true, but you pull up the dad card that many times, it's never going to be listened to. You pull it out at the right times. And so he tells him, don't demand respect, lead by example. Lead by, don't, just, don't let them, he didn't say, don't let them despise and say, he said, don't let them despise, but do this so that they won't despise you. Speech, speech, that's huge. And we could go, well, you shouldn't say these list of swear words. And I don't think that's what it's about. I had an interesting conversation with my son about swear words the other day. And I used a couple of swear words to teach him. And he was just like, oh, my gosh. And he wanted to understand, like, you know, well, there's nothing wrong with the word. It's like, no, there's not. There's nothing wrong with the word. But how the word is used. I said, I can break you down. I can make you feel this big without using a single word on that list. And yet go, oh, I have no unwholesome words in my mouth. Because unwholesome and broken is much bigger. Bigger, not smaller than a list. But it's about speaking truth. It's about speaking at all and not being silent. A leader can't lead unless he's speaking. Then you go, what are you speaking? At times, it's always truth. At times, it's more gentle. But at times, it's for comfort. At times, it's for rebuke. But he speaks. Conduct. It's like, well, if you only speak and you don't actually live, you've got a problem. And it's being governed by the decisions. Your decisions are governed by God's Word. So if I get up here and preach, like, yeah, do this with your finances. Then you go look at my checkbook, which at some level you should be able to do, quite frankly. I have no problem. If you want to see it, my wife might be bothered by that. But hey, what the heck? I don't care. I've got nothing to hide. So that's why I can say you need to give, because I give, sacrificially, of my time, my money, my energy. But if I'm up here preaching this, you be a good husband. You see my wife crying every Sunday. Problem. My conduct should be called into question, as should yours. Also, love, in love, which I really think is the attitude that drives everything, why you do what you do, why you say what you do, it must always be driven, motivated by not your love for people. I know it sounds weird. 
but the love that Jesus has for you and the love you have for him in response. And if you're motivated by a love for Jesus, then your love will be, I believe, like Jesus. If you start by just loving people and Jesus is kind of thing you talk about every now and then, I think you'll actually love people wrongly. It's sacrificial love. It's love that actually costs you something if it's going to be like Jesus. It's going to cost you something. It might be loving someone who doesn't deserve it. And wow, that sounds just like the gospel, doesn't it? Faith, your commitment, I think it is a faith of in God, trusting God, especially in the middle of the storms. You're not freaking out and jumping overboard with a life preserver because you're so scared. You have a steadiness to you. Even if it's painful, you be honest about that. Your leader should do that. As a family leader, you should do that. You don't pretend, you know, zippity-doo-dah, life is wonderful. Let's just pray through it. It'll be great. No. You say it hurts, but God is with us. This is famine time. So we're going to lean on God. That's faith. That's commitment. That's a guy that I can trust, a parent I can follow. It's demonstrating trust and a commitment. That's faith. And then purity. And I think, honestly, it's probably the best thing to put in for a pastor because I think it speaks specifically to sexual purity in the world in particular, and in Ephesus in particular. There's all kinds of temptations that a young pastor, Timothy, is going to be hit by. And young leaders are especially susceptible to that. And I say young leaders as in dads, husbands in particular, you are very susceptible to sexual sin. It is everywhere. It is attacking you. And Satan wants to use it to kill you and destroy your family, and if you allow it, He will. And so we are to live and talk about, I went to a church where they never talked about pornography. They wouldn't say the word. Like, we're going to have a, uh, a men of integrity meeting uh, next week. It's like, what is that exactly? It was about porn! It was about men struggling. And I don't even tell you the percentages, but they're high. There are men in here I know are struggling with pornography addiction and are failing to live pure lives. And it's not like, okay, I figured it out. Now I can be pure. It's a constant. It is a lifelong battle. I recognize that. And he says, look, you need to be pure. Fight for purity. All these things. This is right after he's talked about training and discipline. You fight to, that's why Job says, guard, well actually the Proverbs say, guard my words, guard my mouth, because you have to fight for speech that glorifies, fight for conduct, fight for purity. It is a fight, constantly. And then after he tells him how to live his example, I love verse 13, it's awesome! It's just like, boo, yeah! I love this verse, okay? Because it's like, a guy goes, okay, I want to live that way. Or I want to live that way. A family, I want to live that way. I, I don't know how to pursue these things. And he's like, when everything fails or whatever, this is where you head. The Word. Stick with the Word, Timothy. I know you feel incompetent. Thanks, Paul. You told me how to live. Live an example. That's hard. Okay, I'll do this. Stick with the Word. That's how you do it. And he says, until I come, in verse 13, devote yourself. Devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Failing to build 
and lead a healthy church or a healthy family has little to do with your experience, your youth, your immaturity. It has to do with faithfulness to the Word of God. Period. There is no other thing that will make you faithful, that will help you to be pure. And the same goes with your first church, your home. You can have a thousand books about how to be a good husband. This is, quite frankly, the most important one to have. Preaching the Word was not something, at least in a church context, that Timothy was supposed to do after he had done a lot of other stuff. It was the most important thing he did. And it's the most important thing mom, dad, wife, husband, man, woman, sons and daughter of Jesus that you can do. is devote yourself to the Word. And I would say, in your home, devote yourself to reading Scripture out loud. When was the last time the Word of God permeated your home so everyone could hear it? I ain't talking about turn on 105.3 and having a verse come on or something. I mean, opening up the Bible and reading it. It will protect you. It will empower you. It will guide your family. And if not, you're preaching something. You have to be careful. Something's filling your home. And part of every Jewish service when they had the Jewish synagogue, before the church was really moving and birth, they would read and they would explain the Scripture. And the practice was carried over by the church. And eventually these letters, Paul in some of them says, pass these around to the churches. And so these letters became part of the Scripture. And they would read, First Timothy was probably read in Ephesus and other churches. They would read it publicly, just read it straight down. And so he shows that, that leadership with regard to Timothy gains respect not by pulling out the pastor card, but by godly living, and that leadership exercise authority not by sharing really good Christian opinions and ideas, but by preaching the Word. There are no... Think about this. And this is not to say these things are all demonic. But there are no creative dramas and skits. There are no videos... There are no really cool graphic PowerPoints, no sermons that are full of really good, honestly, psychobabble Christian hogwash. There's no music so special, right? Now it's time for special music. None of that stuff can compare. Not that it's all bad. None of it can compare with the open declaration of Scripture. Nothing. The Word of God, and this is where we believe as a church, transforms hearts and people will flourish where it is read. Not a verse. We have a verse this week. Fantastic. Big, old chunks of Scripture read aloud, explain plainly, boldly, without compromise, even when it offends the snot out of you. That's the best kind, I think. 2 Corinthians 4 is one of the, I guess, key verses for just me personally as a leader, one of the leaders of this church, not the leader. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, and I believe wholeheartedly this ministry of Damascus Road Church exists because of the mercy of God, and He can take it away tomorrow. Firmly believe that. And if He does, that's His decision. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, even if it shrinks. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, even the stuff that's offensive, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our Gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not Damascus Road Church. It's not Sam Ford, Jim Fickard, Chris Rich, Mark Hoxo, Aaron Ortiz. It's none of that. It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We just fulfilled Paul's encouragement as we continue to fill it to read Scripture out loud because there's power in it. And that is why we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. That is why we have sermons that last longer than 20 minutes on average and sometimes too long by God's grace. That is why we sing a lot of Scripture in our songs That is why we teach kids from Scripture in Kids Road and not just entertain them. That would be easy. Ephesians in the church in Ephesus is evidence that churches full of people will grow weak and vulnerable and ultimately die because the Word's not preached. And the same goes for families. You can preach all kinds of things to your children, to your brides, to your neighborhoods, to your jobs. You can preach lots of truths that even sound biblical at times. God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. Maybe dad's old wisdom. Well, this is what I learned. Right? You can teach all kinds of things, but without question, it won't transform anything like the Word of God. And again, the question for all of us is, what is your first church? What is our church filled with? You should hear Scripture. The more you, the more you start hearing Christian whatever, pop psychology stuff, the, you should start walking away. We should st- always send people to Scripture, preach Scripture, proclaim Scripture. And you should be doing the same in your home. I mean, I've even, you'd think that a pastor had it all figured out. I wish I did. But as I sat listening to this, I, I go into other realms of guilt and, and like, oh gosh, I'm going to stand up and preach this now. Is my home really full of Scripture? Do you sing at home? Have you ever sang at home? you ever read Scripture out loud with your wife or your children? But we pray together every night. Nothing wrong with that. Glory. Do you read together? Do you read it out loud? Well, I have my private devotion time that I hit once every 13 days, but do you read the Bible out loud? 
14 and 15. I will say, a side note, it's much easier to correct your children, to make decisions as a family, based on the Bible, when the Bible has been part of your family before that time. I'm just, just a little hint. So the final encouragement to a young pastor who probably has a lot of doubts, he reminds Timothy of this call that he has from God to do what he's doing. He says, don't neglect the gift that you have. It was given to you by prophecy that was confirmed by the elders. Timothy has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit to do what he thinks he can't do. And anyone who believes in the cross, believes that Jesus died in your place, died the death that you deserved, that your sin was buried with Him, nailed to the cross, you were buried with Him, and you have been risen to new life. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. Okay, If you believe that, the Holy Spirit has given you at least one gift. I don't know what it is. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But there is, or at least Paul warns Timothy, that we can neglect our gifts. You can neglect what you're called to do. You can neglect using your gift. And I think there's a lot of ways that it could speak to us. Some of you have neglected it by not using your gift at all. Whatever it is. Whatever your unique gifting is. Some of you just have not employed it at all. I think that's wrong. I think that's what Paul is warning against. But then there's those people that haven't neglected their gift. They've exercised it in ways that are out in the world that's not necessarily for God. Maybe they're a fantastic musician, but they just kind of play music for themselves. Maybe they're an incredible administrator, but they've never really thought about using that in some way to glorify God. It's just not good with numbers. So you can use your gift, too, and not really glorify God through it. And that looks different. It's, it's a subjective thing, I guess. But then he talks about confirming of the elders, at least in his case. And I think there are those who use their gift, and at times they even use it for God. I don't think you have to play music just in the church in order to glorify God through your music or whatever gifting you have. But then there's this confirming of the elders. There is this use in the church, the local church, that honestly gifts are supposed to edify. That's what they were designed for, given for primarily to edify and build the church. And a lot of people that use a lot of gifts out there and they never use them in here. And I wonder if that's a little bit of a neglect of your gifting. And quite frankly, it's, it's hard. He uses that word immerse. He says immerse yourself. Immerse yourself in it. And I was, as I studied this, I actually... Occasionally I do cry. I hate to break it, you know, that's a big shock to everyone. But I do cry, and I was weeping a little bit when I, in Starbucks, which was somewhat embarrassing. So I put my hat down and kind of like, you know, try to hide it. And the, the thing was, it'll be a little open here, is that um, I felt like, quite frankly, that I neglect my gift a little bit. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I love to preach. I love to teach but I really want to teach high school. Really miss it. Dream about it. Literally. Dream about it. Two nights ago I had a dream about it. That's not what God has called me to do. I'm gifted to do it. I love to do it. But I'm a little divided at times. And it's probably prevented me from immersing myself in what I know I'm supposed to do. Right now. This season. Right now. By still laying that out there. I really like to do that, though. When God has clearly said, you are 
to do this. And it's that immersion piece. Because if you're immersed in something, you really can't do something else at the same time. And perhaps you need to confess something yourself. And I'll say this, maybe you haven't fulfilled the calling that God has put on your life. And let me just twist you a little bit. Perhaps it's not as a servant of the church, but maybe it's just as a man, or just as a husband, or just as a woman, or just as a wife, or just as a father or mother, where you have neglected your call, your primary call, and gifting, because if you're a husband, guess what? You're equipped to be one. That you are neglecting that. And I'll tell you why you're neglecting it. It's because you have devoted yourself to something else other than God's Word. You are a bad father, a bad husband, or a struggling one simply because you have devoted yourself to something else. Because I know if you devoted yourself to God's Word, I know what it says. I know what it tells you. I know the power that it has. And my guess is, if you are struggling, first question is, tell me how much time you've spent with Jesus. Really? How much have you truly immersed yourself in what you're primarily called to do? Devoting yourself to all kinds of other things that you kind of want to do, but not clearly have been called to do. That's why you can tell Timothy, you've been called to do this. Clearly. James 1.8 calls that person unstable in all their ways, double-minded, and what happens as a result is you have difficulty making all kinds of decisions. And it begins to bleed in other aspects of your life. And Timothy is told by Paul, immerse yourself in what you're supposed to do and let other people see your growth. Because guess what? Other people will see it. And lack thereof. It is public. It's very easy to see, and sometimes we get blinded to ourselves. But it's obvious for others to see when you are pursuing God. When you're devoted, sometimes we can fake each other out. But over time, any amount of time, we can see if you've devoted yourself as a husband, as a dad, as a mom, as a wife, as a son and daughter of Jesus. It's clear for everyone to see, and should be. And when it's not clear, guess what? You're actually outside a community. 1 John says that we have fellowship together when we walk in the light together. And when someone starts struggling, guess the first thing they do? I'll go ahead and walk over into the shadow over here so you can't see my dirt. And so typically what happens when a husband's struggling, he's not spending time with other men, fighting with other men, being encouraged by other men who are saying, get with Jesus. Almost to a T it happens every time. We are to immerse ourselves in God's Word. We are to immerse ourselves in our gifting and our call. And we are to grow spiritually in such a way that other people honestly could imitate it because that's what Timothy is supposed to be. Last verse. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The last thing he tells Timothy is watch yourself. As you lead these men, as you lead these church, as you lead this family, as you want to command and teach these things, watch yourself. You cannot feed anybody. 
You cannot set a feast for your family. You cannot set a feast for your friends and your neighbors unless you are feasting yourself. It's impossible. And there are so many pastors, there are a lot, that fall sexually and otherwise to sin. And I have to wonder, at least for those pastors, and I wonder for Timothy, does he have anyone to talk to? He's going solo. It's not like these elders. They don't trust him. He has Paul. I wonder if these pastors get to a place where they have to start hiding themselves for fear of what people might think. They become less confessional for fear of losing people, whatever. I actually think that happens quite a bit. And their lives become dangerously secretive and you start seeing them distance themselves from the community and you can't get together with them if you wanted to. And you ask, well, who are you accountable to? And they're like, well, we have elders, but they can't really fire me. That's what our eldership, for, at least for the pastors, is supposed to be. Where I can get in Jim's face and Chris's face and they get in mine and say, what's wrong with your wife? Why is she crying every Sunday? It's just amazing preaching. That's why. Okay? Well, she's crying before you started preaching. What's that mean? Uh, the Spirit's moving. I don't know, right? We've got to be able to get in each other's face and be... You have to allow... I have to be able to be honest up here, to be open, because that will foster an honesty and openness in our church. Will we actually... Whoa, what a thought. Live the Gospel out. That's how I believe you watch yourself. You live in community. And you fight with each other, not against... And you have people come together, men fighting with men, women fighting with women, families fighting with families, for all these things, devoting ourselves to the Scriptures, encouraging one another. Because I know, as we all know, I'm not very good at watching myself. Right? I look really good in the mirror. Like, dang, it's someone says, what's that? What? That, like, stuff on you. What are you talking about? There's nothing there. Yes, there is. We need each other to fight. We need each other to encourage us to devote ourselves to the Scriptures that we might live lives of purity, of faith, of love, of speech, and ultimately lives that are glorifying to God. I pray that's the kind of church we have because the others, honestly, are not gospel-centered. The other, Not other churches, but the other kinds of churches are not gospel-centered and scary to live at because everyone hides from one another. And that's not the goal. Let no one look down on your youthfulness because you're pursuing the things of God. doesn't mean that you will be able to succeed all the time. And as you come up today, as we take communion together, know something. That you don't just take it alone. Yes, you take it. I mean, no one's feeding you it. You take it individually, but it's a corporate experience as the family and people of God. And through it, you're confessing something. Now, I'm not watching every person. Okay, well, they did. They didn't. I'm not doing that. But as you come up and someone sees you confess, you're confessing a lot. You're confessing your brokenness. You're confessing your desire for community because that's the gospel. There's community in it. He saved a people, not just a person. You're confessing that you suck. That you're broken, that I need Jesus to cover me because I am broken and I want to fight with others. If you can come up and declare that, then do. 
And if you can't, I'll pray for you. Because I don't know what's holding you back. Using some excuse. Let's pray. Father, we declare that you are everything. That we are nothing, but you have given us all of you. Lord, I feel incompetent many times. There are many things you have called us to do, to be husbands and wives, to be moms and dads, to even just be men and women who love you, and I feel very ill-equipped to do that, and I want to quit a lot. And I just pray that you will empower us today in a way that maybe you haven't before, that you reveal to us the key to living, which is a devotion to you and your word and immerse in your word. And through that, Lord, you will heal us, you will empower us, you will make us bold. Just declare a need for you, God. And we thank you and praise you for sending Jesus to cleanse us from all our brokenness and to give us new life every day until we can be with you. In your son's blood, amen.